0: in the tech world there's often a narrative that if you build it right users will show up and you won't need sales and business development the reality is of course far different for all but a select few consumer facing applications and it's in that reality that our guest today Hayden Simmons has stepped in to build a successful career. After Hayden earned his bachelor's in economic development from Colorado College, he's held down a number of roles in business development at both the individual contributor and manager level for companies like Tigra, Crossboard Crossboard Mobile, Juvo, Migo, and Facebook. we have been throughout that career as a commitment to emerging markets, mobile, and fintech. These days, he's the Strategic Partnerships Manager for Facebook, as well as a Venture Partner for Lateral Capital and an Advisor for Next Billion Advisors. So if you've ever dreamed of a career that crosses international borders and uses tech to help grow emerging markets, you're going to want to listen in as we catch up with Hayden Simmons.
1: You're listening to the Tour Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor.
0: Welcome to the show, Hayden.
2: Yeah. Hey, Grant. Good to be here.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, for our listeners they are probably sick of me saying this, we still are recording in the midst of all of this global pandemic. I trust you are doing well, despite it all. All is well on my end. No complaints. Yeah. And I really appreciate taking the time. I know it's, it's pretty hectic these days with, with all that's going on, but I'd love to jump in then, Hayden, you know, and before we dive into that, those business development roles and their relationship to tech, especially in emerging markets, I'd love to kind of go back to some of those early days and have you set the stage for us around your career with, with those formative years in college and kind of the, the early part of your career. Yeah,
2: sure. I mean, so I think I've taken a fairly uh, circuitous path to get to where I am today. Uh, you know, when I was in college at Colorado College, I was really interested in globalization and immigration, which led to a lot of trips to Mexico and to the border. CC like really focuses on on experiential education, so a lot of sort of like field trips and 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 on the ground experience, looking at you know whatever class you're studying. And also, it's it's on the block program, so you do one topic for three and a half weeks, all day every day and then have five days off, and then do another class. And so it allows you to go super deep with the same folks and really kind of figure out what you're interested in or what you're not so interested in. To the time I became, uh, I sort of crafted my own major it was economic development in Latin America with the focus on remittances in, in Latin America. So I got some grant funding to go down and live in, in Oaxaca and study the impact of uh, collectivized remittances, which is a fancy way of saying migrants kind of pooling the money that they send home together for community-based purchases like uh, fixing a road or building a church or buying an ambulance, etc. Sort of filling the gap, I think, where, where governments have, have failed in more rural parts of Mexico, especially. With that focus, I, I then went and worked on the border for um, a couple summers during CC and then afterwards as well, leading humanitarian aid organization called No More Deaths. Basically, out in the middle of the desert, providing food and water to folks crossing the border. And then in certain situations, giving folks a ride to churches or hospitals, um, depending on you know, the state that we found them. And obviously, everybody that's been in the desert for a few days uh, is in pretty bad shape. And so we'd often give people a ride back to the border or uh, to the hospital. And really, that was sort of my focus. I think when I came out of CC, it wasn't honestly like a particularly career-driven school. I think a lot of my friends too weren't necessarily coming out of there with like a real clear sense of what they wanted to do next. I knew I wanted to work in something in Latin America, something sort of impact driven and probably on the nonprofit side. You know, after first doing a much of uh, climbing in Durango and uh, spending like six or eight months doing that, I eventually came back to the Bay Area and and worked on the nonprofit side with a association of immigrant rights groups that basically represented some 1,500 different groups. And we would then do product market fit testing for venture-backed remittance companies. So this was really early days in the word, you know, in fintech, right? I don't even know that the word existed back then, but it, it kind of gave me some exposure to, you know, yeah, folks going out there, raising capital. A lot of it at the time was sort of around this, somewhat of a fairy tale around disrupting, you know, the Western unions and money grams of the world. They would then look to us to help them kind of localize their products to different diaspora communities. You know, I really, really enjoyed the work and I, I found myself enjoying more and more like the clients that we were working with versus like being on the nonprofit side and just feeling constantly kind of hamstrung by resources. So yeah, I gradually kind of started making the shift over towards the tech side of things. I was really interested in like how can mobile be used to drive, you know, financial inclusion initiatives at scale and do things like lower cost and increase transparency and then just, yeah, really like democratize access in a way that... that both, you know, generates profit and impact.
0: That's fantastic. You know, first off, those are things that don't come across in your LinkedIn profile, of course. But I'm curious, you know, so that inspiration, was that a, derived, if you will, from that time, quote unquote, in the desert? <laughs> it almost sounds uh, cliche to say you went out into the desert and came back with this idea, but it sounds pretty true. I mean, were you were you observing things there that led to this idea around, mobile fintech and emergent markets
2: yeah i mean absolutely right because it's such a politicized issue just migration itself i think anybody no matter what side of the issue you land on you know especially those that have kids can be like well if i live in rural guatemala and i can't afford to send my kid to school and put food on the table like i'm hiking to the u.s and i'm breaking any law i need to to get into the country so that i can send money home and, and like that sort of desire to improve the livelihood of your own family back at home is really what drives you know these, this massive you know 600 plus billion dollar year of remittance industry. and so for me, it became like it's, it's just sort of inextricably linked, right The migratory path and the fintech side of how do you actually get the funds home once you've successfully you know made the adventurous journey up to the US and and obviously, the same goes across Africa and, to Europe and, and sort of globally, right? It's, it's a very similar dynamic. And, and the traditional incumbents in this space, you know, really, really were sort of cash management players, right? Like Anybody that could, at scale, have cash and then be able to, you know, have the liquidity on both sides of the border to do cash in and cash out. And as mobile phones became more available, a lot of technology has started to emerge that can allow you to lower cost. And, uh, you know, increased speed and increased safety and, and everything else.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned like in many ways, the emerging part for you on the tech side is like, you know, there's these entrenched players like Western Union, which, you know, depending on how you view it, you know, predatory or at least expensive in terms of money. But at the same time, we have this wonderful thing that is the Internet. I'm curious then, like, how did you land that first role in tech? Like you, you come back to San Francisco, you've, you've been doing all this work on the nonprofit side. How did you make that shift into the tech world? Like, what did you do to prepare for that?
2: It really kind of took time and I had, it required like a brief foray into the sort of soul sucking world, at least to me of of mobile ad tech. (laughs) So like, after the nonprofit stuff, like, although I knew the landscape and I knew the industry and I knew the players, you know, probably better than most, it wasn't necessarily like clearly transferable. I think the nonprofit to like tech conversion is not, you know, that trajectory is not a common one. And just to sort of learn the right vernacular and way of working and everything just was pretty night and day. So fairly opportunistically, honestly, I found a job with a company that was a New York-based mobile ad tech company that was opening a San Francisco office. And while I didn't care about like the vertical itself, it, it felt like, okay, this is a foot into venture-backed startup world, which I think is where I want to go. I like the team just because it's not a perfect, doesn't check every single box. You know, it feels like it checks enough that it can kind of get me incrementally towards the next thing.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you, there's kind of two things I want to pick up on there. You know, one the soul sucking side of it. It's, it's interesting, right? I mean, we're we're laughing, but like I think we all kind of know what that means. But define that for you. Like what were you experiencing? Obviously you're very mission driven, which I see very much in my current job. You have this very mission driven moment or, or part of you, but then you know you're also recognizing that there's this emerging area for you so yeah i mean honestly that that's really what it is right like it's when you're working
2: at like a fast-paced company and and you're trying to get to the next round things are fairly kind of you know cutthroat and quick moving and you find yourself like stressed out about things that just at the end of the day you don't care about at all right when you zoom out and take a breath you're like why am i so worked up about this like I guess just maybe for the potential exit of this company, but outside that, like if people, right, like to use another cliche, like at a cocktail party wanted to talk about the work, I was like, I'm going to just spare you, you know, because your eyes will roll back in your head because like it's just, I'm not going to be passionate enough to talk about it in a way that you're going to even care to listen to it. And so for me, like that disconnect just with, with time and it was fine, you know, like it was short, it was, I was young, I got to spend a week a month in New York City and that was fantastic. So so really no complaints, right? But I just think that You know, with time, it was like, okay, I need to figure out what I want to do next in a way that like stays in the same sort of startup mentality. I really liked the dynamic of it, but in 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 an industry that I cared more about. And so, once that ad tech company had an exit, you know, it was nice because it kind of afforded me this opportunity to take a step back and, and figure out what did I want to do. And it was basically two things. Like, I actually I looked at my bookshelf and I was like, all my books are basically. Either about like Latin America or like the Southwest and outdoors and the desert and the climate, should I go into outdoors some work? like is there an, like, a career there that makes sense? Or should I find a way that I can keep working in Latin America and working on these remittance issues that I care about? You know the latter made, made more sense, although I kind of explored both as a consultant. so I just took on a number of projects. It gave me the opportunity to kind of try before you buy, work with I don't know 10 different companies and eventually found juvo and did a few month project for them loved the team loved the mission really loved everything about it and went full-time and stayed there for four years
0: that's awesome i want to come back to some of that later stuff but like that, that time as a consultant i'm just curious from a practical standpoint like many people kind of have this oh hey i'm gonna go out on my own but you did it like what were some actionable things you did to get clients that you know kind of help you navigate that time where you're trying to figure things out. Yeah. I mean, it's just
2: hustle. You know, it's like getting out there, not worrying if someone says no to you on LinkedIn or AngelList or whatever, and like building a story and just like, you're pushing that kind of snowball up the hill and it just gets bigger. And the bigger it gets, the more you believe in it. And the more you start telling your story, the more that story becomes real and true. And you kind of just have to keep sort of moving things. And and you're moving multiple snowballs. You don't know exactly which direction things are going to go. So you're exploring a lot of angles and taking a lot of informational interviews. And it's all good practice and it's all good networking. And if you get something out of it, you can even, if that's something is helping that person make a connection, uh, you really know, never know like, when it's going to kind of come back and go pay it forward. I've always sort of enjoyed the connecting people and connecting ideas. You know, in consulting, it's a lot of that, right? And you're like, even if at the end you're like, well, I don't know anything about this, but I can connect you to this person or whatever. Um, you really don't, never know when that's going to come back. It's that, so it's like putting yourself out there and talking to as many folks as possible, and then it's just going deep and building up some expertise on something that's going to be attractive to folks. And so, what for me, what it was was like was mobile money in Africa. I started just reading everything I could and talking to everybody I could, and there's not that many people in San Francisco that were doing that at the time. And so, you walk in and talk about this with someone, it's like you. I think you kind of stand out because you just have this niche expertise
0: were you traveling to africa too like did you need like boots on the ground experience there not at the
2: time not not as a consultant right because like, you don't have any money you don't have anyone to like expense your education to just reading online and talking to folks and reaching out and having calls and then getting projects and i took projects for companies that you know no, don't need to throw them into the bus publicly but like companies were like this is never going to succeed but who cares right like get in there do the project you learn something they learn something And you never know where it's going to go. Well,
0: and and so then in there, like probably another theme starting to emerge. And I think you hit on it with this, you know, building relationships and networking. And that's perhaps a good segue into, you know, give us a peek into what business development is. I think, you know, we've had one other guest on, Mark Hanan, in in an earlier episode, who I believe is actually how we got connected. He's in business development as well. But I'd, I'd love to hear your take on kind of what that role is and how you approach it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely a spectrum, right? And like even from sales to BD to strategic partnerships, you know, different companies call these roles different things and in some ways maybe just to attract folks and get you in the door because there also is like a lot of overlap. Like traditional sales at a startup, maybe like if you're just selling an existing product and you're likely to have sort of maybe a quota and have some variable comp type to commission probably. And to me like that, those roles have been are less interesting. I like the ones where it's a little bit more nebulous and like the bd pieces like you're trying to bring together partners to build something new whether it's a new product or a new service or feature in a lot of early stage startups especially doing bd you're, you're sort of an extension of a lot of different teams like from legal to product to probably working closely with the ceo data science you know whatever the departments are and sort of putting those pieces together internally and then matching it to what's out in the ecosystem where you know the market you're trying to expand into and then sort of figuring out creative ways to bring these things together through, through partnerships, whether they, those partnerships, you know, open up a new market or just improve your own product. You know, there's a sort of variety of types of BD within there, that sort of variability of it and that creativity to it is, is what I've always enjoyed most.
0: And so like I imagine then like in the mobile space, I mean, you're probably, this is a lot of talking with both the platform providers, the telco companies who are delivering it. Are we talking like handsets and, API services, kind of all of the gamut here. Yeah, exactly. So, so Juvo, basically, you know, we raised
2: uh, sixty million dollars, and basically, what we do is, you know, still a shareholder, integrate into telcos in emerging markets, ingest all of their data on their mobile subscribers in these markets. Subscribers access, you know, data and SMS, etc., on a prepaid basis. So, you know, you have to top up your phone to be able to its balance, right, to be able to make mm-hmm. a phone call. And so, using all of the underlying data, starting to build us, you know, some scores and profiles to enable access to other sort of credit products and financial products on top of the underlying, you know, telco service. Whether it's something like financing a smartphone, which is how I know Mark through Payjoy, you know, they they offer a lock-in services to be able to collateralize those types of loans, or you know, an unsecured cash loan, whatever the case might be. So, you know, while we had sales team really trying to get foot in the door with the telcos on BD and more partnerships driven so like how are you working yeah with different players in the ecosystem to bring some of these financial services to the market from figuring out licensing to you know getting access to the devices and the point of sale software integrations and cash in and cash out and you know anything else.
0: It's so interesting there Hayden you know most of my listeners I think are in the U.S. not entirely and And, you know, you've mentioned emerging markets here a few times and, you know, you're talking mobile and fintech and I think you just gave a little bit of a hint at it around, hey, you got to top up your phones. I think anybody who's traveled abroad probably has had that experience if they've, you know, bought a prepaid SIM. But I'm curious, like, first off, define a bit more what you mean by emerging markets and then also paint a picture of like, what does this look like in terms of the opportunity and how one you know, from San Francisco goes about doing business in an emerging market?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. So emerging markets really just refers to, you know, basically like not the US, not Europe, not the big developed markets. And so, you know, emerging markets can be Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, Latin America, et cetera. And the premise of like the big sort of initial wave of interest in emerging markets is like that that's going to be the next Billion consumers, right? Like ultimately, these people are going to be the folks that Facebook and Netflix and Spotify and whomever are going to need to onboard to continue growing. And these populations, you know, interested in these markets, usually there's some sort of like leapfrog opportunity just because things have developed in a very different way. And people have gone straight to, you know, the smartphone instead of, you know, desktop, laptop. And instead of having, you know, growing up with like Wells Fargo down the street, you know, you end up going to like your telco to be able to get access to financial services. So it's just a very different world in terms of how people access credit and payments and, you know, sort of the whole savings and insurance and these other things that we sort of take for granted because, like, uh, frequently, you know, A, you don't have strong identity data, right? Like, the credit bureaus are very thin-filed and they're erratic and expensive and don't cover the majority of people that you're trying to serve. The people that you're trying to serve might have a smartphone, maybe have a feature phone maybe you don't have any balance on that feature phone, you know, might be dozens of miles away from the nearest ATM, et cetera. And so, like, that kind of, like, backdrop, I think, is what gets people that are interested in emerging market fintech so excited, is because, like, how do you piece together all of these challenges to figure out how to bring these financial services, you know, to, you know, the last-mile consumers and people in, like, rural Paraguay or, you know, the emerging middle-class in Mexico City, even, you know, it's just a very different sort of set of demographics, right? Basically, this require a very different go-to-market strategy.
0: That's really interesting. And thanks for explaining that. You mentioned leapfrog in there. You know, explain that a little bit more because it's actually a really cool tech opportunity, I think, when you think about it, this notion of leapfrogging past a given technology. What are some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I think
2: like the prime or the big famous example, right, is like m which is in Kenya... In the, the telco there, Safaricom, had basically a, a monopoly. And financial services were non-existent. And the banks really had no incentive to bank the majority of consumers. They make their money lending to the government, bills and such. So you don't have all this like legacy incumbent kind of infrastructure that you have to disrupt if you're going to try to bring financial services to market. Instead, you had basically people with phones they're accessing financial services through the top-up network. So Safaricom, the, the telco is like, well, why don't we just let people, the same place you go and top up your phone and buy your scratch card to load value into your cell phone, why don't we also convert that basically into like agent banking services and let them provide other services like cash in and cash out and, let, and let's and use the phone as a means to store value. And so like, you know, while in the US, we start looking at like the PayPals and everything like this is already things that were People were going straight to that sort of wallet mentality prior to having infrastructure like cards, desktop computers, et cetera, would otherwise sort of impact how you brought these things to market.
0: My understanding too, some of this is like, instead of currency, you just trade minutes even, right? Which is somewhat of a foreign concept for perhaps the US listeners. Is that right? You know, like that's sort of the holy grail. It'd be great if you truly could just trade minutes. The reality
2: is that there's a, there's a high cost to get the minutes in and out of the system. That the telcos have to cover because they have to pay the agents you know up to ten percent, and so it's never a one to one, and it's still a liability on their balance sheets and then how do you like value a minute from one telco to the next when they're all packaged in different bundles and then across borders and then there are markets where people you know like in Zimbabwe it was like hyperinflation, the airtime remained much more stable, and so people were literally P2P, you know, just sending minutes, you know, to a merchant to be able to buy chocolate or whatever, you know, that's fairly informal and not government sanctioned. And I think, for the most part, it's been very difficult to find examples of that where it's taken off. A lot of companies have tried to make it happen. The telcos are not positioned to really enable that in some markets in things like Papua New Guinea, one of the telcos there allows people to pay their like electricity bills through their agent networks with airtime but
0: it's rare you know this space mobile fintech these emerging markets i mean there's been a lot of change there and I'm, I'm curious how has that affected you how have you had to adapt and grow with it over the past you know number of years that you've been in this space
2: yeah i mean that's a really good question that's that's kind of what i spend a lot of my time thinking about is like what is the best way to structure a company that's sort of emerging market facing? And I think having a big, fancy, expensive team in San Francisco because it's close to talent and capital, and then like exporting you know your quote unquote sexy Silicon Valley tech to these markets, those days, I think, are kind of dying. And it's a good thing, right? Because it means that access to capital is increasing in these other markets, that data science and our skills are democratizing and becoming more readily available you know, in country that founders are, are finding it easier within their own ecosystems to launch sort of indigenous solutions that inherently are going to understand those problems far better. And I think, you know, if you're paying data scientists in San Francisco half a million dollars to solve problems for people in like the poorest parts of the world, like you're just going to have this sort of economic breakdown at some point. I think about that if I live in San Francisco and I want to live in San Francisco, what's the role I can play to be most impactful on these ecosystems? Is it going to be as an operator still like working with these companies, like I think it's a lot of fun and you can do it. It's unclear if these kind of, if this model ever really has proven successful or will prove successful. And similarly, like tied to like the question around like BD, I think if you're doing BD from San Francisco, ultimately I think, you know, you're going to need people on the ground. And so early days, you can have somebody from San Francisco sort of managing the go-to-market and flying in and out. Ultimately, you're going to want somebody local that, speaks the local language, went to high school with these guys, has those direct relationships at the bank or the telco. And this is especially true for B2B2C, to ca little bit different on B2C kind of products. But what that means is like, what's the role long-term for BD from afar? Are you sort of putting yourself out of business as you build up these local GMs and local teams? They're going to want increasing autonomy to hire their own local BD folks. And so, you know, it's sort of an interesting dynamic that I think you see emerge. And as I started thinking about my future what's the best role i can play it, it feels increasingly like like the venture side kind of is a way to zoom out and, and really have like the macro view and macro impact that you can kind of do from anywhere
0: tell us more about lateral and next billion these next ventures if you will you know so i've
2: always worked at early stage fintechs doing emerging market stuff small team stuff and then so tied to that line of thinking i was just describing it's like okay you could go work for you know, MasterCard, Visa, Facebook, like a big company and still work in emerging markets somewhat. So that's sort of what I'm testing out working at Facebook right now on the Calibra project, which is all emerging market focused. And in parallel, was was starting to sort of leverage a lot of the early stage Africa fintech advising that I was doing and a little bit of angel investing to kind of parlay that into a a venture partner role with a a $50 million Africa tech fund called Lateral Capital. Basically the premise there is like, you know, I was trying to figure out from San Francisco, is there a role to be played for these African funds? And ultimately, most African founders are going to pass through Silicon Valley, trying to raise money. Does it make sense to have a presence here? Largely, what those funds told me was, yeah, you can help us raise money from, you know, the big institutional guys and the big, you know, VCs, which is, is not as interesting to me. But ultimately, did find the lateral capital guys that saw value too in like connecting sort of this Silicon Valley tech world with their portfolio. And so I'm working on helping them go earlier stage and and doing more fintech stuff.
0: That's fantastic. And then I I believe you also have this advisory role at Next Billion Advisors, which, you know, again, I think you highlighted for our listeners earlier, the idea in these emerging markets, that's the next billion of users, which represents growth for a lot of, frankly, a lot of companies these days, not just tech companies. So what's that all about? Yeah, I mean it's
2: it's a really kind of exciting uh, initiative. Mark and you he, he referenced earlier, is putting together to basically you know bring together a, a little community of advisors that have been working in emerging markets can help either companies here scale into those markets or companies in those markets scale more globally, which I think is always sort of a main focus for these companies, right? Like in a lot of smaller emerging markets, the total addressable market is not going to be big enough to really sustain the kind of like uh, growth and valuations that are, you know, coupled with taking venture capital. So having to figure out where to go next and is always sort of a crucial question and um, something that, you know, I have a lot of experience in and a few of the other advisors do too. And so we're, you know, sort of putting that to use on sort of one-off consulting projects.
0: You know, Hayden, woven into all of this, you know, you've got this global side to it. And, you know, I've worked globally myself for a number of of years and working across cultures can certainly be challenging for our listeners who perhaps want to get into working more globally. What are some actionable things that would help them be successful? You know, whether it's in emerging markets or just working around the globe, what are some things that you've learned along the way? For me, like, I speak
2: Spanish, and so, you know, I lived in Spain in high school, and then in Ecuador before college, and then in Argentina, and Mexico, and I think that really kind of helped me, A, like, differentiate myself as a candidate when I was trying to break into some of these companies that wanted to, you know, working in Latin America, and two, like, when you're working in these cultures, it just goes a long ways, I think, on sort of, like, the empathy side of things, to really be able to connect with folks locally. And so, like you know, if you are someone that is just already inherently curious about other cultures and connects well, I think you know, you'll have an easy time in that gap
0: yeah just show up and be authentic I, I guess at the end of the day, right
2: yeah, I mean I think that's that's really what it comes down to, and I think like there are certainly sort of idiosyncrasies to different cultures and cultures where I've traveled where like this is hard for me to fit in and you know get people to like me as but other ones where I think you can kind of like figure things out and and for the most part. People you're doing business with are very internationally like aware as well, because that's just sort of the nature of these big entities anyways, like on the banks and telcos and and startup ecosystems. Things are very kind of globalized. Those folks you're going to be talking to speak probably you know, multiple languages and spend time abroad. And yeah, I mean, I think very quickly things are kind of leveling out.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially the, the internet is often the great equalizer these days, or at least in theory, it is in practice, not everybody has access, at least at the same levels. I mean, we've talked tech kind of from the general standpoint, but I'm curious, like, how does the actual technology show up when you're in a business development role? Like, how do you think about how you represent the work of that your company's doing like explaining the tech being up on what the tech's capable of doing you know separating what's real from what's hype how do you filter that stuff
2: in some capacities you know at juvo i had a technical integration sort of co-partner right that where i could speak you know about the apis and the calls and, and stuff fairly somewhat superficially you know have someone that can actually do like the much more like creative problem solving on the technical side you know, with clients. And this is all sort of B2B again. And so I think it's a variety of like, you know, depends on like how well funded you are to be able to have a resource like that. But it is always nice to be able to have that voice as well, that it truly is naturally kind of technical, that, that you can sort of complement one another. But I think it's it's dangerous to have, you know, sales and BD folks that just don't care, don't know, don't pay any attention to the, the actual like reality of the tech, that of what you're building and what you intend to build.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, to me, like, and I've done a lot of work with salespeople over the years, the the best ones always do the extra mile in terms of understanding the tech. And, and vice versa, the best sales engineers do the extra mile to understand the sales process. So what's the best thing about this role for you? And what's the most challenging? Right, so I, I
2: basically just switched roles in the last two weeks. So initially, I was doing BD, which was sort of contract management because like BD at a big company like Facebook is very different than at a smaller company. And I think that's an interesting distinction. So like when you're doing BD at a smaller company, you're really touching just a lot of things and you're working with a lot of folks and really helping drive strategy. Once you get to a bigger company, things are a bit more siloed, right? A bit more specialized. You sort of have your lane and you stick to it. And to me, that that's taken a little getting used to, right? Where you're not the director of something, and you can kind of just run off in every direction and, and explore things that are interesting, and, and sort of be trusted to make those calls. And instead, you sort of have your strict mandate, and things are a bit more linear, which probably is far more efficient process. But the, you know the way my brain works, I like to be able to have a you know a diverse set of work days and explore multiple things. And even if it goes nowhere, like just the educational upside alone, I think is is always a, a positive. So in the new role, I'm on the strategy team. And so it's like basically, you know, go off, go deep on this, figure out, you know, the landscape of this, the competition, and come back with a sort of set of recommendations, which I really enjoyed. And that's always been a part of BD. And now it's interesting to sort of do that as just a standalone role.
0: Yeah. And what about the most challenging? Again, not Facebook specific, of course, but, uh, you know, across all these BD roles, what's the most challenging? I think like you have to be comfortable
2: when you're doing BD at a startup early stage startup with like ambiguity. And so sometimes, you know, you're selling something that doesn't exist yet. You have to be, you know, comfortable with that sort of, and patient enough, I think, to like stick with it. Because it can definitely be be tiring and exhausting when you're you're pitching a roadmap that's, you know, always seems to be like two years away. But you need those clients' revenue to be able to like build those things. And that can be a challenge for for folks. And like, I've had moments, you know, or like, roles where that's been more challenging than in others where you're so committed to the long-term vision that it doesn't matter right that your passion kind of trumps that ambiguity and then it's no longer is a real obstacle
0: yeah, in mean, many ways, you're selling the future, right? Which I guess is tech in general, but in BD, in particular, my observation is you're often selling that you have to convince somebody to come build something with you that you can then take to market.
2: Exactly. It's not just sales. It's not like just buy this and then they can like play with it and see if they like it. It's like, let's invest resources, expensive resources and time to build in this thing. And uh, no, you're exactly right. And that can, that can be quite challenging.
0: Tell me about the impact of a mentor or a relationship or a friend that they've had on your career to date. Yeah,
2: I mean, I've got a few. I consider myself very lucky to have, have a number of sort of senior mentor folks that I can go to and, and sort of get sanity checks on different ideas. And, you know, one, one example is like I've tried different times, like start something on my own, but I've never really gone fully into it and, and fully committed. And and recently with this like coronavirus and this sort of like newfound free time, right? Where I no longer spend four and a half hour days commuting um, and I can get up at 6 a.m. and the sun's up and do calls with Africa. I've started exploring this, this whole side project and I've had a series of mentors that like have been extremely valuable in, in being like letting me get this thing out of my head. Sort of, yeah, that sanity check, right? I'm like, does this make sense? It seems like there's demand. It seems like this idea is coming together And like just having like that support structure, I feel like I have a lot of like friends too and colleagues that sort of play that role and we all play it for each other. Just a lot of WhatsApping, going (laughs) bidirectionally daily. So this basically this thing, this rally cap community that I'm creating right now, it's a community of angel investors, mostly fintech folks, mostly in the U.S., Folks that work at Plaid and Stripe and Facebook and people I consider to be friends,
1: investing
2: into a portfolio of early stage funds: three in Africa in one basket, and then in the other basket, three in Latin America. And the mentors I've had is like I have a diversity of them, right? So folks that I can go to that are more on like the fund structure side, right? And like how do I actually like manage the legality of this thing and like dealing with like SEC requirements to. How do I like position this from like a storyteller's perspective to create some visuals that are compelling because people aren't going to read a long email to people that are, you know, that kind of can kick the tires on the funds that we're investing in from like a DD perspective, both like debt and equity. And yeah, I know. I consider myself very lucky to just have like a really good close circle of friends that, I, that can act as mentors when called upon
0: flip it around now and what would you tell i don't know 18 year old hayden or somebody who wants to get into this space what's kind of that best career advice if you will
2: i would say live abroad i mean when you're young and you have the time just you know seek out adventures and take risks and, and have as many interesting experiences as possible because it's all going to be valuable and you know, for emerging markets, like it, there's nothing that can replace on-the-ground experience and understanding the people and the products and the landscape. Just studying it in your MBA is a fraction of the value that you get from spending you know, a month on the ground.
0: Let me pull on that thread. You know, can you can you share a story of a a moment on abroad that has come back to you in terms of where you're at in your career or, or the work you've done later, like a particular? I don't know, experience that you had?
2: Well, yeah, interesting. Like when I was writing my thesis in Oaxaca, there was an uprising where the teachers union literally kicked the police and government out of the city and like fully militarized and shut down the teachers. Yeah, it was an estate. I was like, oh, I'm gonna stick around for this and spent a month and and stayed inside the city limits because you couldn't leave. And there were barricades and curfews and total chaos. But then, like when I'm talking to people in Mexico, and you can talk about like El Apo and like what they, you know, that whole crazy moment in their lives, and AMLO, who's now the president of Mexico, but back then had, had sort of sequestered the whole Zocalo, the main plaza in Mexico City, because he was challenging the election results of that presidential campaign. Just being able to like talk to them about that and like that shared experience, I think, has been just like a great sort of like bonding. Yeah, you know, it's similar to like I was in Mexico City for the earthquake a couple years ago, and that's was sort of there for a conference. And it wasn't quite to answer your question, but being able to have these experiences that people can relate to that make it feel like you're not just sort of this like helicopter tourist or um, coming in to like extract value, but really you know much more determined to to drive like long and be there for the long run. I think is is valuable.
0: Yeah, such fantastic advice. I mean, I think the whole travel and living abroad is such a double-edged sword these days with climate change. But at the same time, it's probably the, at least in one of my views, one of the the things that helps cure what ails all of us in in this global environment, which is building a shared understanding. So for sure, I, I think if you can't live abroad, at least travel abroad and and getting beyond that tourist view of the world is so important. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, because when you're 18, you know it's just a different reality. When you're 36, and you have a wife. You can't just drop everything and go backpacking in columbia for a month. Like you, you know, to use that freedom to to build viable experiences.
0: Well, you can, but you got to find the right spouse and be in the right moment. <laughs> I, I'm empty nesting now, and I think uh, my work and that has lined up with being able to do that. So I've been very fortunate. And and I agree, though, it's such a good shared experience. Hayden, this has been awesome to catch up with you and hear about you know this journey from what I understand is Colorado College is a pretty unorthodox university experience. You were literally out in the desert in many ways, finding your calling through to now to you know starting these side projects and, and really working on strategic partnerships. Last question, you know where can our listeners learn more from you? Follow you on social media, connect with you perhaps someday join you on your journey
2: yeah absolutely like happy to to chat with anybody i think that's another thing is just like that i pay it forward just as much as possible like when i was lost in consulting and trying to figure out next steps i was so appreciative of anybody that would take my call and you know they would be willing to sit down and connect me with the next person that you know i find myself doing that all the time and and so always happy to chat with folks and i'm on twitter at hayden Alcalde. call day maybe you can put it in the show notes and then of course, LinkedIn as well.
0: That's awesome. And Hayden, we will be sure to link those up for our listeners. Thank you again so much for joining me today. It was really my pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Grant. It was great.
1: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S, all one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Tour hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.